Uh, that's a wild one. Hopefully not too wild. Get the computer to recognize me. Hello? I'm right here. There we go. So, uh, the text for today is John 20, 28 through... 31. So it's, uh, the, we looked at it last week. It's the second half. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. All right, so this one, uh, this one's for Beth. Uh, She gave me a little bit of guff uh, for not talking about the whole seen, believed thing in last week's text, but uh, I don't know, also for uh, me and for, you know, a number of folks in the congregation where we've had conversations about doubt and thinking about the conditions of of doubt. So I figured we'd take a second look at it, if only for, uh, and Beth, uh, Beth said in suggesting it that, um, of course, you might really mess up something that I've found important and beautiful for my faith, and so, sorry. (laughs) So I figured take a second look at it, see if there's anything there, and of course, on an initial read, this text seems pretty straightforward. So Thomas is a doubter, he needs proof, real Christians believe in God without proof, faith, blessed are those who have seen or not seen and yet believe, sermon over. Okay, so it's a weird reading in some ways if you spin it out. Like, blessed are they who believe and have not seen. Which weirdly implies Thomas suffers the misfortune or the curse of seeing and being in the presence of the risen Jesus. I mean, what a misfortune. It's the misfortune that we'd all love. So maybe there's something else going on here that we've got to kind of dig into and figure out. To the extent that we want to be faithful to the initial context of the Gospel of John, The kind of reading of the text that we have in our evangelical and specifically Protestant tradition, sadly enough, it is the Lutherans that really messed this one up, which does does some some hurt to my soul. It's not wrong to say that the point of it is that we should believe without seeing, but were you to kind of jump in a, I don't know, teleportation or time machine, that interpretation of this exchange might raise some Middle Eastern ancient eyebrows. Okay, well, why? So first of all, they were not really worried about the question of belief in God in the face of skepticism and evidence. Like, that's, that's an us problem. That's not a them problem. They basically spotted the existence of God. They had some questions that were a little bit more specific and weren't really about, like, the relationship between the evidence for belief in theism and theism, or however you want to frame it in the terms of contemporary worldview apologetics, their questions were a little bit more specific. And I've mentioned some of them before. I don't want to harp on it, but it's important. So they were not as interested in the whole, like, rational apologetics thing as we are, since they stipulated, you know, God exists. But they had two really specific questions that they were totally worried about. So those two questions are, what is the relationship between Jesus and God the Father? So this Gnostic mystic thing I've been talking about, the big que- one of the big questions is, 
How do you think about Jesus' relationship to God the Father? And two, I know this is like really weird to us, but they had this other question they were totally obsessed with. What is the relationship between the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who died on the cross, and the risen Jesus? And one of the biggest debates they had was, are those two the same guy? Same being or not the same being? And like, you can see how it folds into this whole kind of Gnostic, mystic umbrella. Like, if God's a spirit and the material world and bodies are bad, how can you imagine some relationship between the person Jesus and the unseen God? And then also, how could it be, you know, even bigger one for them? Like, if it's a difficult question to think about how God has a body. It's basically impossible to imagine a God that could die. So, you know, their question is both, what's the relationship between Jesus and the unseen God? And what's the relationship between the uh, Jesus who's crucified and uh, the Jesus that uh, appears to everybody after the resurrection? And they kind of fold up into this bigger question, I think. And what's the bigger question? I think the bigger question is, when you see Jesus, do you see God? Right? Both of those smaller questions are like a bigger, or, or threads in that bigger question. And then there's this whole Thomas thing that I've been talking about, and you know, like the figuring out what Jesus is doing with Thomas and what Thomas is doing with Jesus. And those kind of sets of questions, the Gnostic questions and the question of how we think about Thomas and Thomas's doubt, those are the kind of things that create this beautiful little exchange between Jesus and Thomas that on first glance seems like very simple, but in the end is like really, I think, beautifully complex and important and uh, hard to unpack. Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. And like, I don't know, I feel like it's always the case that when you look at scripture and you say, all right, let's really kind of dig in and figure out what it's trying to say, and especially uh, sayings of Jesus, like there's this, it just like kind of opens up like a flower to this real beautiful, powerful, central question for all of us. When you wrestle with this text, with some of the, like this is kind of about figuring out who Jesus is, and without listening to that teeny little voice in the back of your head that like whispers to you as you read like, hey, you're better than Thomas he saw but you didn't see and you believe you know when you when you really look at it and when you really kind of dig into it i gotta be honest like it's a text that gets not only complicated maybe even a little confusing and in this case turning to the greek doesn't make it any less confusing so you heard a little bit of this last week the big thing thomas is the first one after the resurrection to recognize jesus as god and like the funny part is you know, the Gospel of John has this weird Lord of the Rings thing going on where they can't quite decide where to end. There's like two or three endings to the Gospel of John, basically. So, you know, putting that part aside, Thomas is, and as we see in the text for today, like the conclusion in some ways, right before the Gospel of John says, hey, this is why I was doing what I was doing. The very last thing is Thomas recognizing Jesus as God. So, you know, uh, uh, it's a funny thing to think about. What is it exactly is at stake when blessed are those who have not seen but believed? And isn't uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe all of a sudden this is not quite as straightforward as we've been led to believe or to see. <laughs> you know, that's weird, isn't it? The terms for believe and see are essentially interchangeable. Let's pick up at the point where Thomas recognizes Jesus as God. I mean, the more I think about this, the more I get salty about how the commentaries treat Thomas. Like, modern and ancient, fathers of the church and scholars, John Chrysostom was like a big deal among the ancient folks, says he's crash, crass and unspiritual. Rudolf Boltman, who's a huge deal modern theologian, says, 
but he's only convinced by shame and represents folks who need a miracle to believe. Uh, other folks call him obtuse, slow on the uptake. But the basic point of John, and the one that we see repeated today, is that Jesus is the completion of Scripture, that Jesus is God. And, you know, the basic, even, even in the kind of first chapter of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the, and the Word became flesh. This, so, you know, the Gospel is aimed at having this conversation in the context of these debates about who Jesus is, how Jesus relates to the Father, and what's the relationship between the crucified Jesus. And, you know, not to, like, dig too far into the nerdy spiritual part of it, but, like, the thing they were worried about is there was this group of folks that said something like, um, if you had the right spiritual practices, you didn't need Jesus to see God. Uh, that was one kind of mystic Gnostic thing. Like, if you did, you know, maybe you'd get some inspiration from Jesus about how to be more spiritual, but we really didn't need Jesus to see God because, uh, you know, God's a spirit, and if you get your stuff right and align your spirit and, I don't know, whatever else, you can see God face to face. And then there was this other group of folks who kind of were around the second question, what's the relationship between the crucified Jesus and the risen Jesus? And they had, like, a million different really interestingly weird interpretations of Scripture. Like, there was one that said uh, Simon of Cyrene, uh, when he goes to help Jesus on the uh, road to the cross, the Holy Spirit confused the Romans, and uh, Simon of Cyrene is actually who got crucified. Jesus couldn't have been crucified because Jesus was God. Or they said um, the human being Jesus, who was able to die because he was human, um, was not the same as the risen Jesus, who was essentially like a you know, super high-tech hologram or something. But that, that's the thing they were worried about. They were worried about what it meant, what the resurrection event meant, what it meant for folks to see Jesus, and in fact, to see God in Jesus. To say that the same one who died was also the God of the universe. To say that the same one who is the intermediary is also the God of the universe. To say that Jesus is a full, kind of, uh, a fully vested member of the Trinity, I guess is how we'd say it later in Christian history. So when we read, blessed are those who have not seen and who are, have believed in our time, we hear the lurking question that bothers us, like, what does a rational evidence-driven person and a scientific worldview believe? How do they, we believe this crazy story? And reading it that way, we basically think Jesus is essentially doing the kind of modern evangelical version of faith. Like, look, don't look for evidence. Folks who lack sufficient, those are, that's for folks who lack sufficient faith. Instead, be blessed by believing without seeing. And that's not wrong, but that's not the point of this exchange for the original audience point of this exchange for the original audience is to say Jesus is the only way to see the unseen God. Jesus is the only way to see the unseen God. The gospel has all kinds of hints about what's at stake here uh, and, and, and that are not necessarily about uh, the question of whether you believe or don't believe in the absence of visual evidence. Like, you know, John is basically saying to the Gnostics, you can see God face-to-face is basically implying that Jesus and, and recognizing that Jesus is God. And he's, you know, there's all this stuff kind of sprinkled through the Gospel of John that is historically interesting because it's refuting the Gnostics, but, you know, what we really care about is how it's useful for us. But it gives us a different way of understanding the exchange between Jesus and Thomas. So Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, if you have a KJV, you probably have the translation that says something like Jesus is scolding Thomas. You have seen me and you have believed. Blessed are those who don't. 
But as you know, scholars and commentators kind of dig more into this, the way our text renders it for today is probably also right. It's not as much a statement as it is a question. Have you come to believe because you have seen? And you know, once you start thinking about it as a question, there are other questions there like, who has not seen? Who exactly is it that has not seen? Who are the ones that are blessed? And, and what exactly have they believed? And once you start to fill those things in, the question really changes. So right off the bat, to see and to believe, as I noted earlier, are kind of messy words. There's lots of different words for see. The word for see they use here is rooted in a Greek word, horea, which does mean to see, but it often means something like to perceive, to grasp with your mind, to attend to, and it has this sense of like not just what is present in front of your eyes, but the sense of like integrating something into your kind of way of thinking about the world. And then the believe words are from pistuo, so like pistis faith, but as I've pointed out a number of times, which comes from the old Greek word that rhetoricians love, patho, meaning to be persuaded. Seeing and believing. Verses 31 and 30, uh, 30 and 31 continue that same theme, although they do it in a little bit different way, and it's interesting how they do it. They basically say, look, there are lots of things that Jesus did that aren't in this book, so maybe you should believe them without seeing them in the story, but you need to see some in the story for the purpose of believing, which is weird because we're not supposed to see and believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. These are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so much is loaded into that phrase, come to believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may come to have life in his name. The translation that we have, come to believe, kind of serves our modern framing of the question. Like the point of this is to see Jesus so that, uh, I don't know, serves as an evidence point in the direction towards understanding God and simultaneously something that we're not supposed to really be that interested in because we're just supposed to believe. But there's another really interesting grammar problem here. Annabeth, in Latin, does sentence order matter? No. Why not? Is Hebrew the same, or is Hebrew of sense order? Uh, no, the endings, it, it doesn't matter about these. I mean, like, there's some stylistic yeah. that you get from the order, but in general, it's more like uh, Latin. Yeah. So Greek the same. What's fascinating about all these ancient languages is that we're very dependent on sentence order to, in order to determine meaning. They didn't care. Like, all, you, you basically change the endings of the words, and it tells you who's the subject and what's the verb and what you're supposed to do, etc., the literal Greek in this question has, or the literal Greek in this statement has two weird points about it. First of all, it's perfectly proper to, to translate it as, these are written so that you may come to believe. But it is also perfectly permissible to translate it as, uh, that these are written so that you may continue to believe. Okay, so right off the bat, one of the questions is, is this about bringing people to faith or is this about firming people in faith, etc. But that's not the worst one on this. The worst one on this is the sentence, the second part of that sentence, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The literal Greek is Jesus estin ho Christos ho huios to theo, which if you translate it directly would be, in, in English order, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But even that is sticky, okay? Because word order shouldn't matter. 
Like it, it, it is, there is like an equal sign. You can flip the stuff on either side and it would be right. So it'd be equally correct to say the Christ, the son of God, is Jesus. Instead of saying Jesus is the Christ. It seems like a triviality, but it's pretty important for a sentence that is about describing the point of the book. The point, is the point of the book that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, or is the point to say that the Christ and the Son of God is Jesus? Does Jesus help us see or believe in God? Or when we see Jesus, do we believe that he is God? Two different questions that are bound up in that Greek. And it gets more tricky the further you dig in. Like, are Christ the Messiah and Son of God different categories, or are they the same category? Like, you could translate it as, the Christ, Jesus, is the Son of God. And Christ or Messiah and Son of God are important titles. They're, you know, claims to... Uh, uh, be the uh, fulfillment of scripture as the Jewish Messiah. There are also claims to kind of say that Jesus, like uh, Caesar's claim to be God of the universe, is God of the universe, and it's the same song with a different verse. Is the purpose of this exchange and of the book, and is what John trying to do to answer the question, who is Jesus, or is it to answer the question, who is the Christ and Son of God? And the purpose, to, uh, and, and the purpose here is, if the purpose here is to say, because you see Jesus, you can see God, or is the purpose here to say, that because you believe in God, you should recognize who Jesus is. Now that difference would be awfully important if we had to choose. But the beauty of the original Greek is that we don't have to. All those questions are present there, I think. The beauty of, of the original Greek is that the point of the gospel is laid out here. doesn't even maybe need to be, if we tried to frame it in English in a way that maintained the word order agnostic character, it would be something like, God and the Son of God are one. God and the Messiah Christ are one. Jesus and Christ are one. Jesus and the Son of God are one. Jesus and God are one. Each one of those things would be a fairly powerful refutation of the Gnostics, but more importantly, what it demonstrates is that when we see Jesus and when we believe Jesus, we see and believe the totality, which was a fairly important question for us, not just in terms of theology or history, but in terms of faith. Back to Thomas. Jesus said to him, verse 29 again, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to or continue to believe. Think about the interaction between Thomas and Jesus without the whole benefit of scripture and tradition and Sunday school and Beth Moore and Caleb and I don't know, all the rest of the stuff that informs how we have <laughs> thought about the character of the faith. Try and put yourself in Thomas's shoes at the moment that this interaction takes place. And, you know, think about, like, what Thomas has to connect all together here. So maybe Thomas sees the wounds, wounds that killed Jesus, and sees Jesus up and about, and is like, yep, all checks out, there are wounds here, Jesus is alive. But even that does not get us all the way to Thomas seeing Jesus as God. The resurrection is obviously an important, I don't know, think about it as a proof point for the character of Jesus as God, but the whole point of the Gospel of John is that there were tons of people who were trying to explain how the idea of the resurrection didn't necessarily connect with the idea that Jesus was God. That was the big question they were concerned about. So having Thomas recognize that Jesus is God is awfully interesting if you put it back in the context of the original question. Thomas would have to not only believe in the character of the resurrection, he'd have to imagine that it's the same Jesus as the one who died on the cross, has to see that the one who died on the cross is in fact God, has to see that God is manifest in the person of Jesus. He has to believe that in seeing Jesus, he has literally seen God. 
That's the beautiful thing about this interaction with Thomas. Maybe if the frame is not Thomas doesn't get it, but we presume Thomas gets it and he sees something that not even any of the other disciples do. do. And maybe it's not even that he sees it. He sees the person of Jesus, but he believes the character of the entire scripture. He believes that Jesus is the God of the entire universe. He believes that Jesus is God. And then we have to return to the question, is he blessed? Has Thomas seen the not seen God and therefore believed in the not seen God. Imagine, just for conjecture, as Ron Burgundy says, I'm just throwing it out there. Throw it right back if you want to. Imagine Jesus is, say, awfully clever with words and likes to make rich and layered theological statements. You know, like, uh, and like read the Bible not only like it's divinely inspired, but like it's even incarnational in some sense. Like God is, God the word is in the words. And imagine because words are finite, and God isn't bound to the literal and straightforward interpretation, that God is inviting us to see and believe by creating these incredible and rich and paradoxical claims. Imagine it. Imagine, in fact, that to read it literally would be to totally misunderstand it, to totally not see what Jesus is getting at. The Gnostics and the mystics thought they could see God directly without Jesus. They thought that the crucified Jesus and the risen Jesus were different. We think that seeing Jesus as evidence would solve the problem of faith in God. Thomas, at least if you read this exchange with grace, is in a totally different conversation than either of those. He has seen Jesus, and therefore he believes in the not seen God. He has not seen God the Father, and yet he has believed that in seeing Jesus, he sees the person of God. The question may well be, have you believed just because you have seen me? Because maybe the miraculous thing here is that Thomas has believe that Jesus is God because he was understood who Jesus is. But here's the thing then, Thomas has also not seen and yet still believed. Thomas sees Jesus, and in Jesus he sees the not seen God the Father, but in seeing Jesus he believes the thing that he has not seen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer loved this exchange. And he kind of put the point this way. We can, you know, we have to hold all these complexities together in that simple question. And like I said, I don't think any of those interpretations are wrong. They're all permissible from the Greek and potentially even implied in the Greek. And of course, we can ask the question, is there evidence for God and Jesus? But that's a see question and not a believe question. I digress. We can ask the relationship between God and Jesus and even what the relationship is between the risen Jesus and the man Jesus. And all of us, I mean, all of us would love to see and believe. Maybe Thomas is seen and believed. Maybe he's not blessed. But maybe he has seen, to put it in the technical theological terms, the not seen God the Father in Jesus. And therefore he is blessed. I suppose we can hold these two together, like all the other sticky questions in those episodes. But I think it's important for us to see the original question because so many of our issues, my issues, around faith and doubt, I feel like are this weird binary where we feel like we're doing something bad in asking for evidence, and where we secretly work to shore up the rational conditions for our faith. And when that starts to crack, we throw ourselves back into this unconditional vision of faith by commitment, where we think that it's just like if we believe hard enough, everything's going to be okay. And the weird thing is, it puts the question all on us. It puts the question all on us and our inability 
to sort through all these difficult strands and it's exhausting and sometimes it's depressing and we're thrown back to this kind of epistemic problem when maybe that wasn't the question in the first place. We see the dynamics of justification. We see the dynamics of proof. We see the weird relationship between seeing and believing. We feel bad when we don't believe and when we ask to see, when we ask to see somehow we feel like it invalidates the question of belief and man, what a difficult bind to be in when maybe we just need to see Jesus. Maybe we just need to believe that in him, the not seen God is made present and revealed to the world. As Bonhoeffer puts it, there are an infinite number of questions we could ask about the theology, ontology, epistemology, whatever nerdy word you want, about God and Jesus. You could ask, how is God in Jesus, and still, in, uh, in, you know, how is God still infinite in the context of a finite body? You could ask, I don't know, what is God in Jesus? What does it reveal about God's uh, understanding of and, and connection to and, and relationship with the world? You could ask, uh, you know, uh, any number of things that try and figure out the complex and difficult and intricate theological and philosophical questions that are bound up with the life of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, and God. When you encounter the risen Christ, Bonhoeffer says, there is only one question that really matters. Who is God as manifest in Jesus Christ? When we see him, do we see God? And when we do, we are blessed beyond imagination. Amen. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> <laughs>